Welcome to Flourishing in Medicine, From Surviving to Thriving. I'm your host, Dr. Mick Krasner. This podcast produced by Ampro is a medical professional liability insurance carrier headquartered in New York State. It came about because of Empro's deep commitment and actions to support the physicians they protect. This commitment includes many wonderful learning opportunities that they have developed, and I hope you explore these podcasts and others of their offerings. I'm very excited to share with you my conversation today with Colin West, MD, PhD, Professor of Medicine, Medical Education, and Biostatistics at the Mayo Clinics in Rochester, Minnesota, where he also serves as Director of the Mayo Clinic Program on Physician Wellbeing. Dr. West's research has focused on medical education and physician well-being and has been widely published in prominent journals, including The Lancet and JAMA, Annals of Internal Medicine, and JAMA Internal Medicine. Dr. West's research aims to improve patient care by promoting physician well-being and reducing physician distress. The discussion today highlights for all of us how physician well-being and excellent patient care are interconnected, forming a virtuous cycle. And Colin has been at the forefront of building the data that shows the degree to which physicians and health professionals are distressed, the impact of that distress, and innovative ways to address it. Colin expresses a deep understanding that our health systems and organizations face tremendous pressures, very often to simply survive and continue to carry out their mission of being a source of health care for, for their communities. However, he points out that addressing physician and health professional well-being should nevertheless be a central part of their response to these pressures. And now, our conversation with Colin West. Well, thank you, Colin. It's really nice to see you and nice that you're taking the time to speak with me and have our listeners uh, listen to what you have to say. I uh, wanted to start with a question about what has brought you into medicine in the first place. You know, the experiences of I've had facilitating and teaching students and practicing clinicians, teachers, academics, and so on. Uh, I've heard some really interesting stories about what it was, sometimes from early experiences in their lives of what brought them in to healthcare and especially to become a physician. And for in your case, uh, academic physician, physician researcher. So if you could tell us a little bit about how this happened, uh, what were some of those early formative events, perhaps, uh, if there were any that you recall, and how it uh, contributes to your life, how it's helped form your life's purpose at this point. Wow, there's a lot there. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me uh, on the podcast, Mick. It's always great to visit with you, whether it's you know formal or informal. So uh, I'm looking forward to chatting during this this session. You know, my story in getting into medicine is a little bit like my story of getting into well-being work in medicine. Not a direct path. Um, I did not come from a science family. Uh, I am the first in my family to pursue a science degree of any kind. My mom is an English professor, and and my uh, dad worked in journalism. He was a, a very skilled headline writer and, and copy editor. I was an accelerated student early on, very interested in math and in science and in reading. And as part of that, when I was in college at an early age, 
I started thinking about, well, I really like this intersection of science and analytics. What's the best way to continue to learn about science in a way that applies to people? Because as I got a little bit more into education, I became more interested in applications to other people and, and what those might look like. I did not have a background in medicine to have a context for what purpose in medicine really was about. I didn't have a seminal event in my past, you know, a family illness or a personal experience that said, oh my goodness, I've got a role model that's going to, that's who I want to be when I grow up. It was more about chasing the science and the intellectual curiosity. And I got into medical school really not sure about where this was going to go. And in reality, you know, training in the early 1990s, when I started in medical school, the standard curriculum was, you know, for the first year and a half, sometimes even two years, at many medical schools, you wouldn't see a patient. It was, in my case, three semesters of four to eight hours in a lecture hall or a lab learning this immense volume of background material with only indirect connections through text paragraphs to other people. I questioned whether I'd made the right choice. The science was there, certainly answering questions that, that you know, expanded knowledge horizons. That was always there. But the meaning behind it, the why does this matter piece was not clear at all. And then in the fourth semester of medical school, and I was in a combined MD-PhD program, so I was getting close to the end of before I would spill out into my graduate phase. So the clock was kind of ticking for like, is there going to be a spark here at some point? When is this going to happen? The fourth semester at the University of Iowa, where I went to medical school, was all about foundations of clinical medicine. That was the name for the course, and it was an entire semester where basically they took the first three semesters of book work and lab work, and it all became centered on patients. And suddenly it was like the light bulb turned on and it was, wow, this is why this matters. I can spend four hours listening to clinically relevant content lectures. And then the afternoon, I'm learning how to do a physical exam. I'm actually visiting with patients and, and engaging with their experiences. And thank goodness that resonated so strongly with me to where I then got into some clerkships and I was really excited as I went out into the graduate phase of things to finish that part and then come back to the clinical side of things and be able to be sort of energized for the rest of it. But again, I didn't really know what the future was going to hold. I wanted to chase the intellectually curiosity fulfilling aspects of things. And I was hopeful that that connection with helping other people was going to provide a context that would be valuable, not just for me, but for the people I was hopefully going to be helping. And thankfully, medicine delivered that. And in retrospect, although I would have liked to have seen a little more patient contact early in the curriculum, and most medical schools have changed now to do that earlier, which I think is really powerful and important, the background in those first, first three semesters, in a lot of ways, made me hungrier 
for that patient interaction, that application, the translation of all that knowledge to patient care, which I think I've held with me now. I mean, we're, we're 25 or more years later, and I still feel that spark of excitement and enthusiasm of, wow, it's amazing that we have all of this knowledge that we can connect with, and we're able to bend that in a direction to help other people. That's incredible. And that's the spark behind medicine for me. So I'm going to ask you just to dig a little deeper into that. You discovered that it really resonated, really came together when you started to apply or see the applications toward clinical care. Now, in retrospect, looking back, do you, do you have any idea, and you may not really know where it came from, uh, where that came from, that, that it did resonate in the end? There must have been something about humanism, the human element that was in you when you started on this path, when you started formally, you know, uh, studying science and then applying to medical school to an MD PhD program. Any, any reflections now looking back? So I think that's probably true, but I was not reflective in any way at the time about some of those deeper purpose laden kinds of motivations. That's something that I feel fortunate to have stumbled into, frankly. And again, I started medical school because I wanted to learn more about the science and it was the best way to continue to learn deeply about science, especially in relation to people. What that would turn into, you know, with relationship dynamics and meaning from work and things like that, I'll be honest, I was not the slightest bit reflective about. It took three really hard, I mean, a year and a half, three really hard semesters of wondering where is the deeper meaning behind all of this? I mean, I can take multiple choice examinations forever and ever and ever. And, you know, I can read 20 pages of a really dry medical textbook and regurgitate answers in a vacuum. But why does it matter? That was something as I grew up a little bit more, maybe I gained my own sense of a little bit of personal maturity. I began to sort of ask those questions a little bit more intentionally. Why am I doing this? And where is this going to go? I think without actively labeling it, I was questioning after that third semester of medical school, what is the next step here for this? Maybe I'm going to go into the graduate phase and I'm going to go into, you know, my PhD was in biostatistics, a little bit unusual for a, an NIH funded MSTP program, especially 30 years ago, but maybe I'm going to be a biostatistician and I have the medical background, but I'm not going to really use it to see patients. And I was starting to wonder about that. And then again, this aha moment of, oh, when this is actually in front of a patient, their family, I think unexpected to me to a large degree, I found that deeply fulfilling in ways that I would not have predicted. I mean, fast forward a couple of years after my PhD, when I went back into the wards, there were rotations that I would not have expected to have enjoyed the way that I did. I didn't know anything about kids. And yet pediatrics was one of my favorite clinical experiences as a medical student. Being able to just go into those experiences with my eyes open to say, I'm going to you know, embrace and absorb whatever's going on here. I knew early on I didn't want to be a surgeon. 
but I could go to surgical clerkships and still see the amazing things that were going on and appreciate that and be part of that. Even if I knew, you know what, this isn't quite the right career line for me. And medicine just kept offering that. There are so many experiences. And to be able to anchor those experiences in something that I hadn't predicted or anticipated. You know, we all write it in our application letters and our personal statements that, you know, we want to help other people. And I think I believed that when I wrote my medical school applications, but I didn't really understand it. And medical school and those clinical experiences actually connected me with understanding, yeah, the words that you put in that personal statement, they weren't just words to get into medical school. You didn't know quite what the context was, but there was something there that now you've finally been able to tap into. That's what medical school delivered for me. And I would be misrepresenting my path to medicine if I said it was any deeper than that, because I really did not have a deeper plan, or I know this is going to go the way that I want it to go, and I just need to get through these few years to get to that other side. I was hopeful, but not particularly, again, reflective about it. I was a put your head down and get through it, and hopefully something on the other side is going to be worthwhile kind of student. Well, you just spoke about something that I really connected with, which is this curiosity. What I heard was an immense amount of curiosity across all of medicine that began to develop and take shape in you and was very exciting. And I think for many, maybe most of our colleagues, that's there, whether you're an internist or a surgeon or a pediatrician, we do appreciate and really have respect for all these different areas in medicine. So that was really interesting. I wanted to go back to something you said when you first started answering the first question, which you, was you alluded to how what you're going to share also has led you to what you eventually wound up being a focus of your academic career, at least part of your academic career, which was and is well-being in health professionals, especially physicians. Can you walk us through how that took shape, how that developed, how you began to identify this was a really interesting, worthwhile and important area of investigation. Yeah, absolutely. And again, at risk of disappointing listeners out there, this was not a grand plan that in five years in my career plan, I will be doing this. And in 10 years, I'll be doing this. And in 20 years, I'll be doing this. I think the common thread is that constant intellectual curiosity. But as I mentioned, I was really a put your head down and get through it kind of student. And there are incredible experiences that we all have in medical school, in residency, in our practices. But I think anyone who says that every moment of those training and practices experiences is a joy is delusional. And they're lying either to themselves or to the people they're speaking with. The reality is that training is tough. And you are in stressful situations with other people who are also under intense stress. And we are often not our best selves in those situations, personally. And we are the recipient of other people who aren't their best selves in those situations. And that makes the environment really fraught for people that are in the middle of it. And so for me, it was, look, there's so much to learn. 
each step that you take in a medical career, you realize how little you actually know. And you have to be open to that new learning. Medicine is constantly changing. You have to be open to that. And so for me, as I was going through residency at Mayo, where I did my internal medicine residency, I was trying to be as open to those experiences as possible, even when, frankly, I wasn't having a great week or a great month. Q3 in the ICU was not my favorite period of time in life. People who love critical care, bless you because we need you. But I was not one of those people. And there's a lot to learn. Patients need you. You try and embrace that as best you can. I didn't really think about well-being. Then as a chief medical resident, things changed. And there were a couple of key factors. The first is just the context of being a chief medical resident. Mayo is a very large internal medicine training program. And suddenly you see in a leadership role like that, where you have responsibility as part of a team for 170 trainees, you realize people are on different places on the spectrum of well-being. And not everyone can grin and bear it. And it's completely normal for people to struggle and sometimes really seriously struggle as part of the human condition. So as someone who was responsible for the experiences of these other trainees, again, not alone, as part of a team, but suddenly my eyes are opened to, you know, you really can't just expect people to put their head down and get through this. They have other complexities in their lives. They bring individual characteristics to this. There was a, a sense of, you know, there's a little bit more suffering and struggle out there than I had appreciated. And then at the same time, my colleague Tate Shanafelt had come out to Mayo for his Hemonc Fellowship. And he had done some early work as a resident at the University of Washington. He was interested in pushing that a little bit further. And he approached our program director and said, you know, I'm interested in furthering this. Uh, is there a pathway for this at Mayo? And my program director, a guy who's now at Michigan named Joe Kolars, basically said, well, I don't really know where you could take this, but it sounds interesting. And if you're talking about doing this the right way, you really need to study it. And I've got a chief medical resident who has a PhD in biostatistics. Isn't that convenient? So he said, you two need to meet. And my program director, Dr. Kolars, he calls me up and says, you know, I don't know much about this character, but Tate Shanafelt has come here for training. He's working with some other people in graduate medical education leadership as well. He's got energy. I think he's, he's going to get some things done here. I'd like you to take a meeting with him to explore where some of this well-being work might go. And I've told this story to others, and I've shared it with Tate as well, actually. I didn't want to take the meeting because I was busy. I'm the chief resident with 170 people that I'm responsible for. How am I supposed to fit this in? And I'm not looking for other research projects. I've got five on my plate as it is. But the program director says, I want you to meet with this person. So you meet with this person. And so set up some time, 30 minutes. That's all I was going to make available. And two hours later, we were still talking and planning our first study. It was just one of those, he had an energy, I had a skill set, and I was receptive to, again, that intellectual curiosity of, you know what, this is actually something. We don't know where it's going to go, but it is worth pursuing. And 
again, a little bit like getting into medical school, the intellectual curiosity around the science and the questions was the first driver. There was a context of, yeah, other residents are struggling and maybe we can learn more about that. There is a humanistic aspect to, can we maybe improve the environment for everybody? In medical school, I had been, I had really tried hard to be a keen observer of my environments and I would try to stay out of the line of fire, but I made a lot of mental notes about observations from residents and attendings. Here are some things that I really like that they do. And here are some behaviors I hope I never emulate because they're not productive. They're actually abusive. And that's not going, it's not appropriate. It's not helpful. So I had a little bit of that background. We designed the first study and basically a little bit like, you know, a, a positive hydra, every question that we lopped the head off of sparked several more. And just a steady growth from there to very local internal medicine residency investigation to then, well, what's going on in the faculty at Mayo Clinic to what's the national picture? And then suddenly the, the switch flips and people are asking us questions about, well, what are the solutions? If you've now suddenly shown this is prevalent as an issue, why haven't you fixed it? And, you know, that it was a whole, a whole progression to this that has led to building an entire community and a dialogue around well-being that 20 years ago was not non-existent because this has bubbled periodically over decades, but was receiving very little attention to where now, you know, we have National Academy of Medicine reports on this. We have Surgeon General advisories. It is well understood that the path to delivering the care that our patients need runs through making sure that our healthcare professionals are themselves well enough to deliver optimal care. Yes, thank you. There are a few things I wanted to uh, comment on. One was this notion of not having a grand plan I think it's so true for us in medicine in general, for human beings in general. I, you may have known this in April, last April, I walked the Camino in Northern Spain, 850 kilometers. And on the Camino, I see these graffiti everywhere. This Spanish poet from the early 20th century saying, uh, walker or pathmaker or pilgrim, there is no path. You make the path as you walk. And this was all over the place. And it was just the notion that you begin and you take us all you know is what your next step is but you don't know what how you're going to fetch up on the horizon so i really connected with that and that's been my experience and i think that's probably true for many of our colleagues the other thing is that one of the things that help i think physicians flourish is effective teamwork teams are really important and more and more we're moving into collaborative models of care and medicine so the team is not only important, it's the way forward, it's the way we care. They can be very meaningful, positive experiences. They can also be very difficult. You mentioned uh, Tate Shanafelt. Maybe you can just say more a little bit about the team of West Shanafelt and Derby. I'm interested in how teams work. And I think our listeners listening to this podcast called Flourishing in Medicine could be uh, enlightened a little bit by the collective work, your collective work that has been so inspiring and maybe some aspects of working as a team like that. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think all of us, Tate, Lottie and I would all endorse 
that we would have been nowhere near as successful in exploring well-being issues and trying to understand a deeper narrative that isn't all about burnout. It's really about how do we mitigate distress and push people toward our real objective, which is thriving and flourishing in their learning and working environments, in their careers in medicine. It has required the team. One of my favorite quotes, which although it's sometimes in the popular literature been ascribed to Oprah, actually I think comes from Seneca, is luck occurs at the intersection of skill and opportunity. And I think a common thread for most successful people is they do work really hard to develop a skill set. And it can take different forms, but you have to have some ability to get things done. And then you have to be open to opportunities when they cross your path. And when you're able to, to put those things together, some people call that luck. I don't think it's luck at all because luck to me implies something random. You put yourself in the best position for success by attending to skills and being open to the opportunities. So by that definition, I've been incredibly lucky throughout my career, even when I haven't known what the next step is going to be. I've worked hard to build a skill set that has been relevant to other work, and I've tried to be an observer and be open to opportunities, even if sometimes they've required that I take a meeting that I didn't want to take at my program director's behest. But even there, within 10 minutes, it was clear that something was happening there. What Tate Lottie and I have in common is first a commitment to doing work properly. So there's a methodological rigor. It's not purely touchy-feely kind of work. It's science. And this isn't about simply taking subjective feelings and generating anecdotal narrative reports around those feelings. There's value in those kinds of human personal stories, by the way. I'm not diminishing them. But in terms of advancing knowledge of a field, those really more provide context for the why we do the work that we do. They don't give you answers to understand what's driving those things or where solutions might lie. And so being committed to methodologically being as rigorous as possible is a, is a common sort of theme for the three of us. I think another piece to this is there's an underlying motivation that is actually never been about, well, I need to increase my H index. I need to advance my academic rank. I need to get a grant or increase my salary or get consulting fees or things like that. It's really always been about chasing that intellectual curiosity that we all share and that I keep coming back to, but importantly, in service of something larger than the three of us. Because this is really about buying into something that all three of us had under the Mayo umbrella. Primary value at Mayo Clinic is the needs of the patient come first. How do you honor that primary value? 
And although that's the primary value statement for Mayo, I would argue that that's actually a core professional value across medicine, that almost every physician and other healthcare worker holds dear. That's been a fundamental motivation. We try to understand what's going on in this environment for our healthcare professionals that is not allowing them to fully connect with meeting the needs of patients. What does that mean from a professionalism standpoint? What does that mean when we think about other related issues like how far does altruism go as one of our core ethical tenets in medicine, for example? Is it, is it professional to grind yourself into dust in service of your patients? Or is it paradoxically, in some situations, you can put your patient first to your own detriment in a way that feeds forward to disserve your patient because you're not actually able to empathize or connect or be available for them when they truly need you. So I think the three of us really were motivated by those deeper questions, but wanted to get at those answers in a rigorous sort of way. And then we were really fortunate as we connected with leaders at Mayo who helped us get some of this research work started, that when it was ready to expand beyond Mayo's borders, we had some really important connections with people like Chris Sinsky at the AMA, who has been longstanding vice president for professional satisfaction uh, among many other roles and contributions. And then she was able to build on several decades of experience as a general internist in her own practice. So she had context and awareness of this is, this is lived experience, but also a connection through the AMA to this national sort of uh, discussion in a way that we didn't have. And so again, we had a skill set to build credibility and an opportunity to partner with someone who was like-minded at a national organization presents itself. From the outside, it could look like a lucky confluence of events. Wow, how did these people ever cross paths? But in reality, we were all staying open to the possibilities as we were marching down our own paths, and we stayed open to what that future would look like. The team part of it has been absolutely essential. None of us could have done what we've done, and hopefully will continue to do to move all of this forward, even as we've dispersed to different institutions, had we not embraced from the very beginning that we are stronger together. And that's a theme across all of interdisciplinary teamwork in medicine. I think it's a strength of the Mayo environment in particular. So we all benefited from that sort of ethos within our structure, but we were receptive to that. And we've seen it modeled over and over again in such a way that the team is actually baked into how we think about these things. And I think all of us would feel like we'd lost a limb if we stopped working together at this point. Yes, I, I think that your discussion of that particular team and what came together, the rigor, the agreement on rigor in investigation, your curiosity, all of your curiosities and the values that drove you is very inspiring. Um, I would refer the listeners to wonderful series. I'm sure you're aware of it in the New England Journal. I think 2019, Lisa Rosenbaum, one of the uh, writers for the journal, a cardiologist, a three-part series on teamwork in which she really outlined some really wonderful ways of thinking about 
our teams in medicine and how we can improve them. I did want to ask uh, something about about where this all begins in terms of the challenges to well-being. You've investigated uh, not only physicians, residents, fellows, trainees, as well as medical students in terms of well-being. Maybe can you paint a picture for what seems to be the source? Uh, I'm sure there's many, it's complex, but where is the source, as you see it, of some of these challenges to our well-being collectively? And maybe you can weave in a little bit about the program on physician well-being at the Mayo Clinic that you direct, how that came about, maybe as a result of trying to address root causes, we can say. Yeah, and uh, so as I start thinking through this, I I will anticipate that I may need you to remind me about the second part because I'll, I'll I'll go off on tangents potentially. You know, where does this all start is actually a complicated and controversial question. And I think stepping back a little bit, one fairly simple way to think about well-being in medicine is that there are both individual and environmental contributors. Historically, we've paid the most attention in medicine to the individual contributors. And in fact, there's a very common mindset that has only started to change in the last 10 years or so, that if someone is struggling in medical school or residency or subsequently in their practice, maybe they chose the wrong profession and they weren't prepared for the rigors or they didn't self-assess their personal characteristics accurately enough to be able to withstand what they should have known was going to be a challenging career path. Unfortunately, that sends a message to people really that we're going to blame the victim as an individual for their experiences during training. The analogy that I think we should learn from is from quality and patient safety, where if you go back prior to 1999, when the Institute of Medicine put out to air as human, the most common approach, not universal, but the most common approach to dealing with errors that affected patients and patient safety issues was to identify the individual who was deemed most responsible for that error, isolating and identifying that person. And we would have M&M conferences where they would be brought up onto a podium to defend themselves against the indefensible. And they would be humiliated, frankly. And that was supposed to be instructive. They would never want to make that kind of mistake again, and everyone in the audience would be terrified, and that would prompt them to be more attentive, be more dutiful. And we know that in the short term, fear can be a powerful motivator, but we also know in the long term, it's a terrible educational strategy, and yet that was the norm. And then to Eris Human came out and said, wait just a minute here. Let's think about who goes into medicine. The vast majority of people who choose medical careers are dedicated, committed, bright, passionate individuals who want to help others. So how can it be that when mistakes happen that they don't want to have happen, we then turn on them and isolate them and suggest that they are defective? Why aren't we taking responsibility for a system that doesn't protect both patients and healthcare professionals from human fallibility. That's really my sort of 
nutshell of what To Air is Human was all about. And, you know, Deming, one of the, the leaders of the quality movement, has identified 85% of the reasons for failure are rooted in systems and workplaces. And I think that that's probably fair in well-being as well. There is a 15 or 20% part of this that comes from the individual. And we have to take responsibility for bringing our best selves to our work. But the majority of this is about taking well-intentioned, highly skilled, intelligent people and putting them in untenable learning and working environments where they almost have to be superhuman to survive. And when they're not superhuman, even for a moment, we turn on them and say, see, you're deficient. Now, where does all that start? Well, from an individual standpoint, there is a physician personality that's been described going back decades. And it's variable, obviously, because we're all different. But some common threads are that we have perfectionistic tendencies. We thrive on positive feedback. We are trained over years and years and years to strive for the, the perfect score and the praise that we receive for getting straight A's and things like that. And it is easy to be seduced into thinking that those are the primary outcomes that matter. When in reality, as you get into medicine proper, you realize, much like I illustrated in my own story, it's not about the grades or the multiple choice questions. It's about your interaction with a patient on their journey of hope and healing in whatever form that takes. And that is subjective. And for people, you know, it's informed by your knowledge base, but it's so much more than that. And that can be incredibly daunting. Or if you're able to get your arms around it a little bit and dance with the uncertainty that medicine brings, it can be deeply meaningful and the purpose behind a career in medicine is unparalleled. So that perfectionism doesn't start in medical school. It may not even start in undergraduate because we're going back even in elementary school, perhaps. There are no studies, good studies of this to my knowledge, tracking over decades of a medical career. But some of these tendencies, these innate characteristics, I say innate, but they're also learned. Uh, these are brought into the medical school environment and they may put people at risk of then being in an environment that is not able to support them fully and they're not able to achieve the same level of relative success. For example, most of us had the experience in our first few weeks of medical school being told by somebody, now remember, all of you were the top students in your colleges, but half of you are now below average. And that seems like a ha-ha, what a funny thing to say. It's not if you're one of those people that for the first time in your life is below average in your peer group by somewhat artificial metrics, but you don't know they're artificial until you have a larger view into what medicine is really all about. And so that individual piece of it is part of what drives this. And then the bigger part is environmentally, we have not taken enough responsibility for putting people in situations where they actually can tap into what I call the MVPs of well-being, meaning, values, and purpose. And instead, we run them through a gauntlet 
of examinations and presentations on rounds where if you make a mistake, you're, you're worried that you're going to be ridiculed. And, and I'd like to think that our training environments have progressed immensely in a positive direction, even in the last couple of decades. But we know it's still not perfect. There's still a lot of that sort of blame and shame, lack of respect for fellow human beings. And the idea is we don't have time for that. We need to serve our patients and you need to get better. But in reality, we get better faster and more effectively when we're nurtured and cared for along the way. And so I think those are some of the background kind of contextual elements. And then those also inform solutions. And that's where the program on physician well-being comes into play, because that's a research program at Mayo. It started in 2007. And it started as a direct result of the then chair of medicine, Nick LaRusso at Mayo in Rochester, uh, Minnesota, I should clarify, uh, that uh, he said, look, you've done this work on internal medicine residents. What do we know about the staff, the physicians at Mayo? Because aren't they dealing with the same environments and the same pressures and the same stresses? And our answer at the time was, we don't know anything about the attending physicians. It's never been looked at, certainly not in the Mayo environment and minimally nationally. And so our chair of medicine said, we need to start something to allow you to look at those questions. And I'd like you to start with Mayo because that's where our, our current questions are. But I think this should expand rather rapidly to beyond Mayo's borders. Tate Lottie and I were supported it was pretty modest. I mean, we're talking 10% protected time for each of us to be able to launch this program to further the research first and foremost, and then serve as kind of an advisory group in an informal way for leaders across Mayo as some of these well-being issues would come up around learning and working environments. All of that's informed by this balance between what are individual physicians or learners bringing to the table themselves? What are their personality characteristics around perfectionism? Or I'm going to say narcissism. I don't mean that in a you know personality disorder level for the most part, but a tendency toward you know needing that positive feedback to sustain ourselves. And as we've learned more recently in studies, that we didn't know 15 years ago, despite all of our accomplishments and our skills, we actually, we grind ourselves down. We don't self-valuate as highly as the general population. We have higher rates of imposter phenomenon in medicine. Some of that's because we think our peer group is amazing, and it is, and we don't include ourselves in our peer group. And it's, it's an amazing thing that you can think all of your colleagues are incredible and wow, just wait till I'm found out. And they're thinking exactly the same thing about how incredible you are. And neither group is ever telling the other group how amazing they are. And so we have this sort of silence around our feelings of self-worth that feed into that perfectionism, those individual characteristics and that informs potential structures and solutions. And as you said, it's complicated, but you start to see where some of this, it, it, it takes a little bit of shape 
out of the ether. And you can start seeing where some of these dimensions that drive not just distress, but if we turn them in the right direction, engagement and thriving, we can see where some of those levers are. You talked about teams, building community, connection. It's remarkable how isolated healthcare professionals actually often feel in what is an incredibly social and team-oriented profession. And yet, unless we're intentional about building that sense of community and even beyond that, true, uh, excuse me, true belonging, we can lose that. How do we manage our workloads in a way that we can cope with? Do we attend to that? Or we just say, you work until the work is done. Well, that's laughable in medicine because the work is never done. There has to be some boundary that allows you to recover and be able to come back and bring your best self forward for your patients. And the team piece of it, and then I'll take a pause, the team piece plays into that as well, because historically the culture of medicine has been the buck stops with me. I am ultimately responsible myself. And that's been considered part of dutifulness and commitment to the profession and your patient's needs. We have to evolve that to say, I cannot deliver that and sustain that 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. I need time to recover. I need restorative periods. My patient should not experience those gaps, however. So how do we keep the patient supported 100% of the time? Well, we have to make, set up structures where we have, okay, I'm in a restorative period right now, but I've got a team and my colleague is just as skilled and equipped and rested and prepared as I am so that when, quote unquote, my patient, really our patient collectively has a need, there is somebody there so that they don't experience a drop in the service or care that they receive. We can still have primary care panels where we have patients that are you know, mostly ours individually, but we then develop safety nets as teams for when we need ourselves to rebuild, recover, just take time for the non-work aspects of our lives that are necessary for us to be fulfilled as complete human beings. That's a frame shift culturally for medicine that I think we're struggling with right now across the profession, but it's a necessary shift. How do we maintain personal responsibility, but link that with a context of team-based safety structures for our patients? Yeah, well said. I think, I think it can be done as I'm sure you do. It's just getting there. I would say that the nascent seeds that were planted uh, in those early days of the program on physician well-being have really had profound impact across medicine. Um, I want to just shift a little bit towards solutions. You and I have spoken, Colin, before about the concept of chief wellness officer and what role that office can have in uh, affecting systemic change for the better. If you can, maybe describe what you see is the resources that that office needs and the approaches that it requires to be effective and maybe discuss if we are anywhere near uh, close to a critical number of CWOs, chief wellness officers with such resources and approach, uh, approaches. One more thing, an individual and office like the chief wellness officer cannot possibly fix all the woes 
that physicians and other health professionals experience in terms of their well-being. So maybe add to that, what other ideas should we be considering? Yeah, so the first thing I'll respond to in terms of, you know, are we approaching or have we achieved a critical mass where chief well-being officers, leaders in this space who are embedded in the executive functions of an organization uh, are present? The easy, it's an easy question to answer. We are nowhere near a critical mass. We are woefully deficient nationally, actually. And again, I go back to the quality and patient safety analogy. We need to learn faster for well-being. Almost every organization has a chief quality officer or a chief patient safety officer when 20 years ago that didn't exist. The most important reason there is because there's been an increasing understanding that patient safety is not something that happens without specific attention. No matter how skilled we are, human fallibility, uncertainty, random chance, all of these things are part of medicine. So you need to have a structure that isn't responsible itself for ever getting to zero errors. That's not achievable or reasonable, even though it's an aspirational goal we still hold, but is responsible for setting a strategic framework for an organization and even nationally around how do we minimize errors, maximize patient safety, and make sure that this is something that institutional processes connect with. And that's where I think well-being leadership needs to be nationally. You mentioned a CWO is not going to fix all well-being issues by themselves. That's absolutely true. What a CWO offers is a formal recognition that the well-being of your healthcare teams is a foundational priority that serves your organizational mission. And I view the CWO role as actually a role of facilitation more than anything else. This is a role that helps your executive leaders who have other areas of responsibility deliver on those longer term mission objectives. What's their vision for the well being of the organization? I have yet to meet a CEO or an executive leader at an institution who gets up every morning thinking, how can I make my healthcare professionals struggle today in delivering great care for patients? They have their own challenges and the financial world in medicine is very messy. There are, there's a lot of personnel management and workforce shortages that are tied up in well-being actually. They've got a lot of challenges for them to deal with. To expect them to weave well-being naturally into all of those other considerations when there's an entire depth of knowledge behind well-being uh, is not reasonable. And so a, a chief well-being officer, in my view, having that person at the table when those executive C-suite type discussions are happening keeps this fundamental human value in the conversation. And I think it actually allows well-intentioned leaders to maintain that focus that I think they all really want to have, but if it's not formalized and part of the conversation, it risks becoming almost an option when you're faced with emergencies that are financial or staff related or whatever the, the different dimension may be, and you're going to put out the fire that's in front of you. 
that's human nature in leadership as with anything else. And so, you know, well-being leadership fits that, that role. Patient safety leadership, I think, is a similar idea. DEI leadership is similar. You make sure that these foundational core values of an organization are represented in the, represented in the executive decision-making. And that's really how I view well-being in medicine. It is a values statement for an organization. And you elevate the visibility of what you stand for as an institution or as a practice when you have well-being considerations in that C-suite for those discussions to be on the table. That doesn't mean that every decision an institution makes is going to maximize well-being to the detriment of other considerations. There's a trade-off and there are balances, but right now we are rarely having the conversation. I'll be very narrow. I'll speak about, for example, a margin target. We are very rarely having the conversation about setting a margin at X percent as a goal. And what are the benefits and the risks in terms of our staff of setting that margin versus what if we set the margin 1% lower? What are the risks to the financial or growth uh, needs of the organization versus the potential benefits to well being of our staff? And conversely, what if we turn the treadmill up more and we make the margin goal even higher? What are the benefits financially? You know, we can build a new parking garage. We can update medical equipment that is falling apart. There are some key objectives that are reasonable and fair to talk about, but we need to hold those in balance with what are the potential costs to our people. And make no mistake, the single greatest resource any healthcare organization has is its employees. They deliver the mission. And any leader that forgets that is destined to not achieve their objectives. And I think having well-being represented in leadership conversations can remind leaders of their best objectives, their best goals, and keep them connected to that. Uh, so that's why I think we need more of this. We don't have enough institutions that have been able to or have committed to fully embracing this. And it needs to be a meshwork across the organization as well. You need to have leaders, not just in the C-suite, but at the division and department level, at the work unit level, who also are bringing that well-being voice. And I want to be clear, that's not an adversarial voice against other objectives or initiatives at the institution. It is a complementary and supportive voice because engaged employees deliver your organizational mission on behalf of your patients much more effectively. The business world has understood this a couple of decades ahead of medicine. And we have really, in some ways, you know, Danielle Ofri wrote about this a number of years ago in the New York Times. We have, in some ways, weaponized the notion of professionalism with this idea, as I hinted at earlier, that it's selfish for us to be concerned about ourselves. It's unprofessional. It's not altruistic. And I think we need to step back and take a broader view. If we're talking about sustaining our service to patients, that requires that we take care of ourselves. In professional athletics, for example, I know it's controversial right now in the NBA, for example, the mandatory rest days for players. But really, that's a guide to say, 
if a, if a professional athlete overextends themselves over and over and over and over again, they will break down and in the long run, not be their best self. In medicine, where are the professional athletes of caring for other human beings? We need those recovery periods and we need to be building our structures to support us for the long haul because that's what our patients truly need. I'm reminded by an article in, I think it was in JAMA, you may be able to remember it, uh, the, that was about Captain Sully and flying the plane into the Hudson River and comparing how we handle challenges in these kinds of experiences with health professionals, physicians in particular. Do you think Captain Sully went back to work the next day or the next week or the next month? No, not at all. It's a safety issue. It's a well-being issue. Uh, I have two questions I'd like to get to in the time that we have remaining. If you could describe several related things. One is, what would it be like to be a patient in an encounter with a health professional who's flourishing, energetic, committed, compassionate, attentive, robust? What would the experience be like for you? And then, as a health professional in a patient encounter, what would the experience be like for you being the health professional who is that person flourishing, committed, compassionate, attentive, and robust. And then I have one more question after that. So I love the way you framed that question from both perspectives because they actually cannot be separated. We wrote a consensus document, the Charter on Physician Wellbeing, published in JAMA in 2018. And the first, the, the first guiding principle in that charter, which was agreed upon and signed off on by 25 major healthcare organizations in the country, who, and anyone who's ever been in a leadership uh, environment will, you know, sort of drop your jaw at this a little bit, within 12 contact hours achieved consensus. This resonates with people. The first guiding principle was that healthcare professional well-being and excellent patient care are symbiotic. They, they form a uh, has been called a virtuous cycle. And the more we feed both of those, the more we move away from what sometimes feels like a downward spiral in medicine to an upward spiral. So as a patient, and I've been a patient myself, when you are cared for by somebody who has the capacity because they are supported personally and professionally, in being able to deeply engage with you. They've got those resources to bring to bear for you. You are truly cared for by that person. It's not lip service. You feel that your well-being as a patient really is the only thing that matters. It builds trust. It's calming. And I think even before you have undergone a test, taken a medication, had a procedure, your healing process as a patient has already begun by the nature of that interpersonal connection with whoever that individual is. Doesn't have to be a physician either, by the way. It can be the person at the desk. It can be the parking attendant. When that person is able to engage with you in a way that comes from a place of a capacity for empathy. It's incredibly powerful. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just leave it at that. And the converse is patients feel 
when their healthcare professionals can't engage with them. It's one of the single greatest dissatisfiers in medicine right now for patients. The physician who feels rushed, the physician who didn't listen, the physician who doesn't seem to care about my experience. I had to repeat myself three times about things that are actually fundamentally important. And because they're distracted constantly, I don't have much confidence that the next steps in my management plan are going to be the right ones. And that is disconcerting for patients. It adds stress to patients that is counter to what we want for our patients. As the healthcare professional in those situations, what do I derive meaning, values, and purpose from in my work as a physician? Helping my patients. And the more I'm able to deeply connect and, and understand their context and engage in their stories, which are fascinating. People live sometimes very difficult, but complicated and beautiful lives. And for us to be able to be part of that, for whatever period of time is an incredible privilege. But if we are disengaged, if we're, if we're languishing or even in distress, we can't connect with that privilege. And there's a sense of loss there that happens because we know we want to, and the gap between what we can do and what we want to do is where other terms that you know we could get into in another session, like moral injury, start to enter the picture. So taking great care of patients, being able to be fully present for patients is uplifting for the healthcare professional. And experiencing that as a patient is a key part of the healing journey. Thank you. And um, finally, what does Colin West like to do for fun and enjoyment? Don't worry if some of the answers may be work-related. That's okay. For example, for me right now, I love listening to podcasts that interviews interesting thought leaders who kind of think outside the box. And then I get inspired to write about it and write blogs and things like that at this point in my, in my work life. So for me, that's fun. So I know it sounds weird, but it's true. I also like to walk to nowhere in particular. So these are things I like, but what, what do you like to do, Colin? Yeah, this is, this is a great question. And as you've mentioned, what, what works for each individual is very individual. I thrive on variety. So whether it's work or outside of work, at work, I am most fulfilled when I have multiple irons in the fire and I'm working on medical education projects and I'm working on well-being and I'm seeing patients and I'm teaching residents and I'm grading master's exams in the graduate school and, you know, just lots of different things and staying connected with that work and seeing it have an impact that hopefully is positive and frankly, fighting the feeling that it's selfish for me to derive a feeling of reward from seeing the impact of the work that I do in all those different domains. You know, if I'm honest, I mean, we have a problem with that in medicine, like giving ourselves the, the latitude to take credit and pride in the work that we do. I try to maintain a balance on that, but it is meaningful when you help a graduate student move to the next phase of your career. You teach a physical exam skill to a medical student and you see three years later that they've taken it and they're doing it better than you did because they've continued to grow that skill set. 
or you're doing well-being work and advocating on a national or international stage, and you see things progress to where major national groups are taking these threads and tying them together and changing the culture of medicine in ways that will benefit healthcare professionals and patients. I try to connect with that. Outside of work, variety is also important. I try to stay physically active. As I get a little older, it's harder to do things that I used to do all the time, like play tennis seven days a week. But for me, it's like, you know, my wife got a Peloton and I'm not a Peloton junkie, but I'm on it a couple times a week because it's variety. I try to uh, do a little bit of light jogging or run. I can't call it running because I'm not fast enough to really call it running. And I do that because I'm bad at it. And cardiopulmonary wise, it, it, it's painful a little bit, which tells me I need it. So I keep doing that kind of stuff. I play tennis a couple times a week. I try to stay physically active and I try and stay engaged with my work colleagues. I try and stay engaged with my wife. I have two teenage kids and they've got busy lives as well. And just trying to stay connected and engaged with all of these other facets of being as fully formed a human as I can be, that's what keeps me engaged and, and present to the greatest possible extent. Doesn't mean every day is perfect or, or even great. I have bumps in the road, as I think we all probably do. Um, but there's a, a larger picture there of this aspirational goal of trying to make sure that the work that I do and how I spend my time connects with meaning, values, and purpose. And that's what I try to, to hold as my North Star in what I work toward. Well, this has been a most wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, very generous of you to share uh, the professional and the personal, because in many ways, they're not really separate. It's all a continuum of who we are uh, as people, as human beings. Thanks for listening. We'll include a summary of today's podcast and links about Dr. Colin West and other references that were discussed in the show notes. I would like to conclude by sharing another practical exercise to help you flourish during your workday. To add to others that I've shared in prior episodes to the toolbox of skills that you can draw upon to enhance purpose, meaning, and well-being. This exercise is a reflection exercise about teams, teamwork the teams we work on. Given the discussion with Colin about individual and organizational aspects of well-being, let's take a few minutes to reflect on teams we work with in healthcare. Think of a team you work with. Think of one in particular that's functioning optimally, one in which communication, which we know correlates with quality, is clear and fluid one in which there exists a sense of psychological safety, where each member of the team feels safe to express ideas, share information and opinions relative to their role on the team. Reflect now on what it's like for you working with such an optimal team. What would you notice about this team, about you on this team? What words would you use to describe that? What qualities and values in you would be present with this team that may be reflective in how you function in it? What would others notice 
observing this well-functioning team. Reflections such as these can help us recognize when our teams are actually functioning well, motivating us to continue to function well. And it also helps us to recognize when things are not functioning so well, what elements may need to be recognized, addressed, or changed. I hope you found this podcast and the simple exercise useful to you and look forward to having you join us for the next episode of Flourishing in Medicine, From Surviving to Thriving. If you'd like to learn more about MPRO, please visit www.mympro.com, M-Y-E-M-P-R-O. And for more information about me and the work I do, please visit www.mickkrasnermd.com or www.mindfulpracticeinmedicine.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope to have you listen to a future episode.